Welcome, uh, Dr. Aaron Berger and um, uh, Kristen Minetti to Modern Urologist. Uh, I want to thank you guys uh, for taking time away from the, the LOGPA meeting here in beautiful downtown Chicago where it's always sunny and balmy, and uh, today is no exception to that. Well, sunny it is. Um, just to let you know, it is 60 degrees and sunny back in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I'm from, so not to make you feel jealous. Not at all. Uh, and the leaves are beautiful. I just probably just passed leaking. Leaf season. So welcome and thank you for, for coming. And I'm going to start off right now. Uh, this is the first time we're actually having two people together, and I, I'm going to enjoy this. Um, and one of the things I want to start with is you guys have built a very successful uh, testing program for hereditary cancer. So I want to ask you, uh, and either of you can start, how did you get into that and why did you feel this was important? Well, we started our advanced prostate cancer in our group about four years ago, and it's been evolving and growing, and it's a very rapidly changing field uh, with new medications, new treatments, it's kind of turning in more of a chronic disease for a lot of people, uh, so since there are a lot of new treatment options and more treatments coming down the pike, uh, the genetic testing is, is becoming more and more important, not only for helping counsel patients and their family members about potentially why the patient may have gotten a more advanced form of prostate cancer, metastatic prostate cancer, potentially at a young age, um, and helping their family members find out if they're at risk for not only prostate cancer but other forms of cancer, um, and also potentially um, finding out if they're going to be eligible for additional treatments that may be dependent on certain genetic mutations uh, down the road. So how do you deal with uh, when people say, there's not enough positives. When you do genetic testing, there's not enough positives. And, and I, what's your thoughts? Or what's your, what's your comeback to that type of doubt or, 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 or that? And, and we kind of know the answer, but I want to hear what you, what you tell people or even your partners about these kind of things. That does come up a lot in clinic. Is this going to change my treatment plan or what is this going to do for the future of my, you know, my course of treatment? I just say... I, I give them the realities, the realistic statistics of what's going on in our practice. I be honest with them. I'm, I always tell them, you know, we've identified five genes within our practice, but for those other 55 patients that we've tested and are negative, it's just a, you know, it's a confirmation to their families that they're not at risk for developing any type of genetic, you know, cancer. So I think it's just peace of mind for them and mm -hmm. their families. Yeah. So... You've been doing this for several years now, and how's it going? I mean, you, I mean you've tested a bunch of people. You guys mm -hmm. are, are, are very prolific, and, and you're good at, uh, or very good at recognizing who to be tested. So how did that, how did you develop that process, or where did that come from? I'm sure it was from the brains sitting over here, not, <laughs> not from the doctor side of things, but... Uh, I actually saw my first presentation on PARP inhibitors, I think at an AUA presentation about two years ago, and I kind of was waiting for the genetic component to come into the practice, so I was very enthused about bringing it into the practice, so I kind of had him come along board with me. Um, <laughs> we like just that. started. I mean, how often, it, besides at home, have you, you referred to as him all the time, like all I am? Time. Yes. Okay. Yes. All the time. Yeah, that's always very a, impersonal. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. I just thought it was a impo very important component for us to bring into the Advanced Prostate Cancer Clinic. And as we discussed together, that we should start screening all of our metastatic patients first before we kind of brought in with the lower Gleason's 
Yeah, why, why, why was that? We already had identified them in the clinic, mm -hmm. so every day I was prepping for clinic, I had probably five or six patients that I could screen every time we had clinic. Okay. I like what you said about you prep for clinic. Mm -hmm. Go into that more because I think that's where a lot of some of these advanced prostate cancers, especially with hereditary programs, fail because they don't prep. Yeah, it's Tell me about your prep. Um, I have my staff print me a list of clinic about four or five days before clinic, and I spend hours and hours going through each patient's chart, identifying what they qualify for, and I have notes all over my entire thing, what labs they need, if I want to do genetic testing, and then I hand that to my staff and say, this is what we're going to do for the day. So you, when you're drawing this patient's PSA or CMP, we're going to add genetics on that day. And it makes it very easy for me because I kind of show up and talk to the patients and I already have all the notes done saying, okay, this person has had genetic testing. This person hasn't had genetic testing. We should be thinking about this. They're a good candidate. So Kristen makes it very easy. I just show up and kind of confirm uh, what she's already uh, thought of and discussed with the patient. But as far as, you know, who we're testing, why we're testing, you know, the, the guidelines keep evolving. Uh, mm -hmm. The most recent uh, NCCN guidelines uh, have really put a big focus on genetic testing. Um, not only for metastatic patients, but for even low-risk patients who have family history. And on a personal level, I have a pretty strong family history of prostate cancer. So it's definitely something I'm interested in, and yeah. I think it's important. Um, have you been tested? I have not been tested yet, but I probably... I've had my PSA checked, but I haven't had my genetics done. So uh, I probably should do that at some point. Um, but it is, uh, it is something that's personally important to me. And as, as far as some of the... The negative results we're getting, you know, I always explain to the patients, it's great that this is negative. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that there's zero risk because obviously there's a lot of genes that may be involved in certain cancers that we just aren't aware of uh, right now with, with science where it is, but certainly it's come a long way uh, with all the, the testing that's available now. Just from the conversation, I'm assuming that you're doing the majority, if not all, of, of this work for your practice. Is that right? We're doing most of it right now. We felt it was best to roll it out in the setting of the advanced prostate cancer clinic before uh, taking it out to um, the rest of the group. You know, there's certainly, there's, there's several different different uh, tests available and we wanted to do our due diligence and see, uh, you know, what works for us, what doesn't work for us uh, before we take it out there to everyone. Because certainly with some of the lower risk patients that, that would qualify who have family history, uh, we could do this um, in, in patients who are not "Quote unquote advanced prostate cancer," right? But I think it's we wanted to get that experience um, with the metastatic patients, grab that low low hanging fruit first, sure, and then bring it to the rest of the group. Well, you know they qualify okay, is... and they qualify, so it's not you don't exactly. have to go through all the because that that's that's what makes it more difficult. Yeah, we don't want patients getting any unexpected you know bills, charges. Um, you know, they call the office. Oh, what is this bill for genetic testing? You know, right. I thought this was I thought I qualified for this. So yeah, when you have the metastatic patients, it's it's kind of a no brainer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whereas the low-risk patients, you do have to have some more documentation about family history and things of that nature. But it's certainly not hard. It's just a matter of uh, educating everyone to make sure that, that we have a checklist that, that makes it work. Who gets the I mean, family history, getting a family history from a man is like... It's difficult. It's very difficult. Um, do you, you know, do you do it at, at the point of uh, talking to them about going ahead and proceeding with testing? Or is this something that you say, go home, talk to every single person you know, because I know 
you have zero idea of, of about your family history. So how, what's your, for that? Because that's always kind of a bottleneck for, mm -hmm. for this, especially in men. You know, for women, it's not a problem because they know. Right. I like my wife knows, yeah. My, my wife's are with them. Oh, yeah. Um, we, it's definitely something we need to get better at, for mm -hmm. sure. You know, because we count on sometimes the primary urologists to get a detailed history before we even see them. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely something we need to get better at, just yeah. in general. And some of the main need to be part of, like, the patient intake forms when a new patient comes to the office or we have a newly diagnosed prostate cancer patient that mm -hmm. is part of the part of the discussion is that family history um, and you're right if they don't know and a lot of men don't know or they forget yep. and if their wives aren't there then it's probably something that you don't want to assume that that's the correct information because half the times they'll say oh no I don't have anybody and then the wives are sitting there and they'll say oh yeah what about so and so right. so and so had prostate cancer so and so had breast cancer so uh, you definitely want to Make sure you have the right information. I think that's been a little bit of our hesitation about rolling it out to the mm -hmm. the lower risk patients with the family history because we want to make sure that stuff's all documented properly. Yeah, and has to be. And you know, try try getting a, a Gleason score of a family member when the guy doesn't even know what first yep. doesn't know what Gleason score is, doesn't know his own himself. Correct. And, it, and it's very difficult. So. Um, yeah. Your partners are, are obviously involved. They're sending patients in uh, for you guys to take care of. Um, one of the questions that, that often comes up from these, um, these, uh, this testing is liability. And, you know, whether the, the patients are worried about what they're responsible for or the doctors are responsible for, um, you know, what do I have to do with the family or what more if this guy comes back and he's got some, you know, genetic predisposition to colon cancer? You know, how do you guys address that within your group, within yourselves, or, or you know, what's your thoughts on that? I think the that certainly is a concern. It's a concern that I think all of us have when you're getting into genetics is how is this, What it sounds great to have all this information, but what are the downsides? Right. What are we getting ourselves into? And it's certain, not only just cost, but, you know, concerns I had, does this affect, you know, potentially uh, can they be, um, like, discriminated against as far as, uh, you know, jobs or insurance coverage or things like that. So it is it is concerning. You have to be upfront with the patients about, okay, this is this is something to think about. Um, but I think again, having the having the genetic counseling services available um, for most you know most of the companies that offer the test do have that available. Um, certainly, my risk does, and then I think that that kind of takes that burden of of the discussion and what to do about it off of our hands. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, I think it's just a matter of us identifying the right patients, discussing the benefits and offering it to patients and not, we don't have to worry so much about the implications of a positive test because it kind of gets shifted on to the genetic counseling services. Yeah, and you and you take full, full utilization. Full utilization of that. of that, absolutely. What about on the pre-site? What do you guys do for, you know, counseling um, about getting the tests and, and you know, not necessarily when it's a positive test, but just to get the test. Do you, do you find pushback at all, or, or how, do, how do patients you know, feel about getting this? We have some, some patients who I think just want to get more information. Mm -hmm. um, most of them end up getting it at some point. We will hand them out a patient education brochure, and they will take it home. Most of these patients we're seeing either on a monthly basis or every three-month basis at a minimum. So I always tell them, you know, this is a test that will certainly have benefit to your family, you know, even a potential benefit to you and your future treatment. So even if they don't have children, it still can be a benefit because uh, we do have some patients as well. I don't have kids or I don't have biological kids. How is, why does this make any sense? So, you know, it's still, 
you know, with the PARP inhibitors coming out and any other new medications you know, down the road that may be based on genetic profile, uh, that certainly still may have benefit for them. Yeah, and they also um, have to understand that if they have it, their brother or sister could have it. Correct. And even if right. you have to go the other way, their parents may have it as well. Yeah. You know, there's it's, a 50% chance that their parents will have it. Yeah, so. especially because a lot of our patients are getting, you know, blood work done, PSA is checked, so... You know, it's just uh, like it's just one more tube of blood. You know, it's uh, you're already getting it done. So, right. You know, now is a good time. But if they if they have questions, they want to do some reviewing and review the patient education, or have other questions and discuss it with their family, then or get more information about their family history. Then we're certainly not not forcing it on anyone. I mean, this the guidelines are to offer it. The guidelines are we. It's not mandated that you do it. Right. So they're recommendations. Not correct. It's not a it's not a mandatory requirement to get treated in our clinic. So. Yeah. So you guys practice in a town where there's several major um, academic centers, competing groups, and things like that. Um, I know a lot of it is probably geographical that you guys are separate, you know, from a geography standpoint. But um, this. You know, the success that you've had, and you really have, and, uh, and, I, and a lot of kudos to you guys for developing what you have. Um, do you use that to help singles, you know, you know, single yourself out from other groups that you compete with? I mean, because it's tough. This environment is, is a tough one. It is. I think our geographic area, we're a little offset from the downtown academic centers. And, mm -hmm. of course, they're, they're great. People get great care there. But I think our patients, we'd like to try to think that we're offering state-of-the-art medicine where they don't have to sit in traffic. Obviously, geographically, we're not distance-wise as the crow flies too far away from any of the big academic centers, but as anyone who's driven on Chicago freeways know, it can be a long way uh, to go or a long time in the car, even if it's a short distance. So I know it only took me an hour and a half in yeah. a cab from O'Hare to downtown exactly. the other day. Only. It was only an hour and a half. But yeah. we, definitely, we definitely utilize the academic centers and all they have to offer for those patients who are coming up positive or who have uh, with some of the uh, other genetic testing now we've started doing on some of the somatic testing if they have certain mutations you know there's a lot of different clinical trials available uh, our practice we've done some clinical trials but we just don't have the infrastructure to you know run a ton of trials that the uh, University of Chicago or Northwestern may have available or Loyola so I think we do use those resources to get patients, especially patients who are progressing or failing other treatments, into clinical trials to try to get them, you know, next next generation treatments that, that we just can't offer. But for the clinical trials, you guys are more agile, you know, to go, you know, one of the, one of the arguments about uh, academic centers nowadays as opposed to the out in, in the setting is you guys are seeing the patients and they're coming back to you and it's easier for you to start a trial than going to a university where it has to go through um, 137 layers of bureaucracy before they can get started. That's not true in yours. So if you found that you're, you're getting um, trials presented to you more than you thought you ever would these days? We've, we've had some. We've been involved in several trials. I think we'd like to do more. Uh, I think the main issue is, is just having uh, enough enough hands to, uh, to help out with the paperwork. I mean, honestly, the, all those things require a lot of follow-up, a lot of paperwork. You mean Christ, the, the 18 folders yeah, of... Kristen's got her hands full enough, you know, getting everything else uh, with the patients we already have. I mean, because it's really uh, myself and Kristen and the rest of uh, our, our, our support team that do this for 17 doctors. So it's a pretty good number of patients. And 
Uh, I think we would certainly like to do more clinical trials and we'd have a partner that helps uh, with some of the research uh, uh, research uh, company that helps us you know, identify trials and help us with some of the paperwork. So we definitely would like to do more. I think we do, you're correct, we do have the patient population for it. I'd rather not send them out um, to other places and, mm -hmm. and offer those things in our clinic. Uh, so hopefully moving forward, that's something we can become even more involved than we already have been. Okay. In the APCC world, where do you see this going? Um, put yourself, project yourself out four or five years. Um, you know, feel free to talk about PARPs or, or, or what you've heard about. There's immunotherapies coming out. Where, where, do you, where do you guys, from what you've seen, see this going? I'm gonna, Chris, I'm going to ask you first. See, you know, what's, what's your best guess? I mean, it's just a guess. So where do you see it and, or even your role in this evolving? It's going to be a constant evolve, you know, evolving situation here where we're going to be identifying more patients and qualifying them for more care. And there, I think there's 15 new therapies that are under trial right now that are going to be you know, FDA approved soon. So our volume is definitely going to increase. You know, our, it'll be booming very soon. Yeah, Doctor. Same well, question. Yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's that, that's why I've, I've wanted to get involved with this. You know, several years ago, uh, I think it is mentally very stimulating. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of lot of aspects of urology I certainly still enjoy, but as far as rapid change and things evolving very quickly that you need to stay on top of and keep yourself educated about, it's just very intellectually stimulating. Uh, and there's, you know, the PARP inhibitors. There'll be new. Um, radio pharmaceuticals uh, coming out, and then certainly depending on we if we start including this and making it more of a not just advanced prostate cancer center but advanced urologic cancer center where we're starting to do new bladder cancer treatments as well. That remains to be seen because there's a whole new uh, new new day coming as far as bladder cancer treatments uh, uh, coming. So. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's, there's. It's definitely going to be keep, keep getting expanded, um, and we'll probably need some more help at some point. Health cancer center. <laughs> yeah. The uh, and you probably felt as I did for years, nothing new in urology. I mean, yes, the robot came out and that kind of changed things, but the robot is just a different way of doing the same thing. Yeah. It's really not. It was new technology, but it wasn't anything novel. Mm -hmm. It's you know, instead of using your hands, you used this thing, and um, and then all of a sudden. You're right. It's something new, and that's the, been the biggest change. You know, we, we look at a timeline. And we in just in prostate cancer, we had digital rectal exam. And that was really it. Maybe some alpha, you know, alpha we checked mm -hmm. on, and then you know, Gleason came out in the '70s, PSA in the early '80s, and then nothing right. till ten years ago or nine years ago, eight years ago, and then so we had this just big paucity of things. So it's a lot of change. Um, what about challenges? Where do you see in your group, whether it's with the Advanced Prostate Cancer Center or not, um, or just in general, what do you feel like your biggest upcoming challenges are in the next couple of years? I think what you just said, I think, is, is part of the part of it's exciting, but it's also part of the challenge because a lot of urologists have been doing the same thing for a lot of years. Mm -hmm. yeah, and there was some data presented, you know, at the at the meeting just yesterday showing that roughly 70% of patients with metastatic cancer are still just getting androgen deprivation therapy, even though there's multiple large randomized controlled studies saying that's not the right answer. It's kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah. It is. So, um, you know, I think that's still a challenge. I mean, I think our group is, has been pretty 
pretty good uh, the last couple of years as far as buying in that that's not that's not right for our patients and they should be getting up to date therapies and not just getting you know first generation androgen blockade uh, you know if they start to fail or only on hormone therapy so but that's not necessarily the case in all practices uh, we certainly have some work to do uh, still in our practice um, but I think that that long time status quo or nothing changed is still ingrained in a lot of people. And it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, even with all the talks and new drugs and new approvals and everything the last three, four or five years, it's just, it's still hard to get old habits to die. Well, you know, we learned this week that the average urologist is 58 years old and that a third of our urology workforce is over 65. So it's no coincidence that they've done it this way for 30 years and they've had great success that they're still wanting to, to maintain that. But if you ask them, you know, what are your rates of incontinence if you have radical prostatectomies or what are your rates of uh, erectile dysfunction, they have absolutely no idea. They may throw something at you, but they really don't know. They make it up. They make it up. Yeah, yeah. That seems to be the uh, the prevalent thing these days. It's just if you don't know, make it up and make it sound convincing. Yeah. So, uh, I want to thank both of you for coming. It, it's very enlightening to see you know such a successful program that you guys have built, and and I'm sure that other people they may hear this and they you know will might reach out and say, hey, how can we get in our practice, you know, emulate what you've done. And so, again, I, I congratulate you because, you know, from what we hear in, in, in the world, you guys are doing a fantastic job. And uh, that's it. really great. So I want to thank you for coming and, and sharing your story with us. And, you know, good luck in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you.